this week we're going to be looking at beauty and blessedness. Beauty and blessedness. My plan for this morning was to do beauty, blessedness, and glory. And then I got into my study and realized that's not going to happen. (laughs) So it's just going to be beauty and blessedness this morning, and we'll see if we can squeeze in glory next week. Um, But I do want to get on to the Trinity as well. So Um, we're going to start with beauty. When you hear the term beauty, what comes to mind? Okay. <laughs> I set it up, he knocked it down. There you go. <laughs> Other than Mike Dunn, what comes to mind? <laughs> Physical appearance? Art? Attractiveness. You guys made his point. (laughs) Okay? Nature. Okay? Anything else? Yeah, so beauty, oftentimes we use it to describe physical appearance. You can say a flower is beautiful, art is beautiful. Um, When it's applied to people, it's usually not applied to men, but it's usually applied to women. She is beautiful. For men, we use another term, very handsome, right? Um, Merriam-Webster's dictionary provides this definition of beauty. The quality or aggregate of qualities in a person or thing that gives pleasure to the senses or pleasurably exalts the mind or spirit. Beauty refers to the pleasure received by an individual when they behold, when they see, when they experience some attribute of another person or something else in the world. Notice its particular attributes, its particular qualities that are considered beautiful. It's not the whole thing that's considered beautiful. It's certain aspects of that thing. I did find another definition for beauty. It's a very scholarly uh, source, uh, dictionary.com. But they did provide a really good definition. It's a little bit longer, but it kind of expands this idea of beauty. Here's what it says. The quality present in a thing or person that gives intense pleasure or deep satisfaction to the mind, whether arising from sensory manifestations as shape, color, sound, etc., or meaningful design or pattern or something else as a personality in which high spiritual qualities are manifest. It's been said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And when you look at our definition, that's kind of true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Something is beautiful when its qualities are pleasing to the person seeing or experiencing those qualities. Notice our definition. It gives intense pleasure or deep satisfaction. You enjoy seeing and experiencing what you consider to be beautiful. It's enjoyable. It's desirous. Um, let's take an example. How about, this was mentioned a few minutes ago, a landscape. How many of you, by a show of hands, how many of you would agree that is a beautiful landscape? Okay. So we're all in agreement here. Okay. Now, if you were standing where the photographer was standing, if you just happened to walk up to that spot, how many of you would see that Glance at it and then just keep on moving. Anybody? Take a few moments. You'd stop and take it in for a moment. Maybe you'd sit on the rocks. Get out your phone. Take a picture. Take a couple pictures. If it's beautiful, if it's something that's pleasing to the eye or pleasing to the mind, it's something that you want to look at. It's something that you want to take in, that you desire. Okay, so what qualities, beauty is a quality or qualities that are pleasing. What qualities are in this landscape that are beautiful? What makes this picture beautiful? Colors? Texture? Texture? I was going to say, if I was sitting there, I would just see God because nobody could make that. Okay. 
He says he, he would see God in that because nobody could make that. I heard someone else say the sun. I heard someone. I said the lighting. The lighting? Okay. Any other qualities that make this picture beautiful? Okay, yeah, you got the reflection at the bottom. So there's some water in the background with the sun reflecting off it. The more you look at it, the more you can see beauty. I mean, you, you look at the dead tree and it's still pretty. You look mm-hmm. at the moss-covered rock, it's still pretty. And when you add all that, it gets exponentially pretty. Yeah. And so if you take a few moments, then you're going to see God's word because he's the only one that can do it. Good, yeah. So everyone's seeing different qualities that stand out to them. These are all the qualities that make this picture beautiful in your mind, that makes it pleasing to your mind. And some may say, well, this picture is beautiful, but it's not the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Maybe you like pictures that the sun isn't visible in. You like pictures where you can see the light, but you can't see the sun. And you like to be able to see a lot of water. And so some people would say that this is more appealing, more satisfying. One might be more beautiful, more pleasing to you than the other. But the thing is, both of them possess inherent qualities that you find to be appealing, that you find to be pleasing and satisfying to your mind. And this idea of beauty, we're using it just in physical terms, talking about physical landscapes, but you can also apply it to things like moral qualities or characteristics of a person. So you could say that person has a beautiful sense of humor. That is to say, you find their sense of humor to be pleasing and satisfying. You can find a person who is very honest and has high integrity, and you can say that is a beautiful person because they are extremely honest. It doesn't have to just refer to physical attributes. It can also refer to sounds. Beautiful music. And just like when we're talking about physical beauty, everybody's got a different idea of what is beautiful when it comes to music. Now, I'm one of those people, if I'm in a car with someone, I can listen to just about anything. But if I'm in the car by myself, there's generally, and I'm not judging anybody else, there's generally one version of music I just cannot listen to. It's rap. It's one of those things I just, it comes on, it gets turned off. It's just not my thing. But I know there are other people who say that's a wonderful genre of music, and they love it. Someone's singing can be beautiful. And when we say that, what we're saying is there's qualities inherent in their voice that we find to be appealing and satisfying. And we desire to listen to it because it's pleasing. Because I don't think rap is beautiful, I have no desire to listen to it at all. But I do find hymns to be very pleasing. So I enjoy listening to those. Yeah, see, I'm going to get to that in a moment. (laughs) Carl has a keen eye, and he said, if you study it long enough, you'll notice there's a tower in the back that kind of messes up the the picture. And now that everybody noticed it, (laughs) we're we're going to get back to that in just a moment, Carl. You're you're actually ahead of me. The point here is when you find something that you consider beautiful, you desire it. You want it. You want to participate in it. You desire that which is beautiful. And God's attribute of beauty here is not far removed from what we're talking about. When we say that God is beautiful, what we're saying is that God has attributes and qualities that are inherently pleasing and satisfying. When you see them, when you experience them, His qualities, his attributes, you might say, eclipse the attributes and the characteristics of anything or anyone else in the world. God is more beautiful than any other person, any other thing, and he is more satisfying than all of them. To put it another way, of all the things you could desire, 
God is the most pleasing and the most satisfying. Wayne Grudem explained it this way. God's beauty is that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Take every attribute that makes something beautiful to you, every quality that makes something or someone beautiful, that makes them satisfying and pleasing, add all of those attributes up, combine them all into one person, multiply that by infinity, and that's what you have in God. God is beautiful. He is the sum of every desirable trait and quality. Any trait that is desirable, God possesses it perfectly and infinitely. He possesses them all to their highest degree. Every beautiful trait and quality that you can think of, God possesses. If it's truly a beautiful trait and quality. Which is why this idea of God's beauty is closely connected to his attribute of perfection. Perfection talks about what God um, is saying that God does not have, excuse me, that God does not lack anything, is what perfection is talking about. God lacks nothing. Beauty is saying what God does have. He has everything that is desirable. He has every beautiful quality. It means that God is desirable. These are two sides of the same coin, perfection and beauty. One is the negative. God does not lack anything. The other is the positive. God possesses everything. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. One thing I've asked. It's like the old Christmas song. All I want for Christmas. Just one thing. There's only one thing David said he wanted. And that was that he could behold the beauty of the Lord. That he could see, that he could experience all that is desirable in God. To put it another way, David wanted to find satisfaction in all that is desirable in God. He wanted to experience the full goodness of God. He looked on the earth. There are other things on the earth that are desirable, that he could desire. But he said, none of those truly can fulfill me. None of those can truly bring the satisfaction that I'm looking for. Nothing on this earth is worth my full devotion. Because nothing on this earth can satisfy the way God can. And if I do find something on the earth that is satisfying, if I do find music that I really enjoy or a landscape that I find to be beautiful, the only reason those things are satisfying and desirous is because they have received their qualities from God. He is what gives beauty to the world. He is the ultimate source of beauty. A similar idea is expressed in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Okay, hang on a second. This is David. I desire nothing on the earth? He obviously cannot be saying that he has no other desires in the world. Because if you know David's life, you know that's not true. He had other desires. His heart was filled with desires. That's not his point. His point is that all of those other desires, when he compares them to God, all those other ones seem just insignificant. He couldn't find his ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in anything other than God. The world offers fleeting and temporary satisfaction. You find something in the world that's physically beautiful. That physical appearance will only last for so long. With the passing of time, it's going to atrophy, it's going to decay. It's not going to be as beautiful as it once was. That new car smell that you love so much when you got that brand new car, five years later, it's gone. Five days later, it could be gone, right? It always breaks down. It always atrophies. Or, what Carl said earlier, if you just sit here and study that beautiful thing long enough, 
you'll find imperfections. Why? Because you live in a sin-filled world. And so you'll sit there and you'll stare at that beautiful thing because you want to stare at it. But the more you stare at it, the more opportunity you have to find out that there are qualities in it that you don't like, that are not desirous. And so the, the fulfillment and the joy that you receive from that is only temporary. Or maybe it's not the beautiful thing itself that causes it to diminish. It's not the passing of time. It's not some imperfection in it. It's really the sin nature in you. You just get used to seeing this beautiful thing. If that landscape we looked at at the beginning was your backyard, for the first couple of weeks, that would be really amazing. But after a month or two, it would just be your backyard. And it would no longer be as beautiful and as satisfying as it once was. It would become ordinary and common. common. Psalmist recognizes that the things of this world are fleeting. They're temporary. They only give temporary satisfaction. And if he wants to find full fulfillment and satisfaction, there's only one place he can go. He can go straight to God. And he sets his desires on the one who can satisfy him completely the one who is infinitely beautiful and worthy of his desire. Wayne Grudem commented on this. He said, The psalmist recognized that his desire for God, who is the sum of everything desirable, far surpasses all other desires. When you see God rightly, when we get a right picture of who God is and what God is, when we truly behold his beauty, we find that God is the greatest thing you could possibly desire. That he eclipses all other beautiful things in the world. And that fellowship with him is more satisfying than any other thing that you can find. If it's worth desiring, if it truly is beautiful, it is beautiful because that beauty, those qualities, those characteristics come from God. And it is ultimately those divinely given characteristics that we desire. And what that thing says about the God that made it. God is the standard of what it means to be beautiful. True beauty is not measured according to comparing it to something else on the earth. Just like truth is not measured by what I say or what you say, it's measured by what God says. True beauty is defined and measured according to the attributes of God and his characteristics. Anything that is truly beautiful got those qualities from God. They are manifestations of God in the creature. And this is a communicable attribute. You can reflect the beauty of God, albeit imperfectly. you reflect it by demonstrating those same characteristics and qualities that are in God. And you reflect those and demonstrate those in your life. Peter discussed the beauty, and he talked about the beauty of a wife. And he tells them in 1 Peter 3 that they should desire to be beautiful, but the desires that they should focus on and the qualities that they should focus on should not be merely physical. 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that doing any of those things is wrong. He's not saying you shouldn't care about how you look or your appearance. He's not saying that a wife shouldn't try to make herself look nice for her husband. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that shouldn't be her primary objective. Her primary standard of beauty should not be her appearance. 1 Peter 3, verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. True beauty isn't flaunting what the world desires, what the world finds attractive. True beauty is demonstrating the qualities that make God beautiful. Notice, Peter says, it's an imperishable quality. He's talking about the, the gentle and quiet spirit. It's imperishable. It's not like physical beauty. 
Physical beauty fades away with time. Physical beauty fades away the more you look at it. This is imperishable. It's imperishable because it comes from God. It's based on God. It's not fleeting. It doesn't pass away. That is to say, this quality will always be pleasing. It will always be beautiful. It will always be satisfying. Both in this life and in eternity. I could spend my life trying to be the best looking person in the world. Exercise, eating right, taking care of every part of my skin and my hair and doing all that. And when I get to heaven, it won't mean anything. This body's going to go away. I'm going to get a new body. It won't have any value or meaning in heaven. But this internal quality he's talking about, he says it's precious in the sight of God. The term precious here refers to something of great value or worth. You could say it's expensive. It's costly. If you want it, it costs a high price, right? If you were going to buy it at a store. It's more valuable than jewelry. It's more valuable than dresses and perfumes. This is God speaking. The same God who said it, I count all the nations as dust. And all their wealth and riches is nothing to me. And he looks and says of a woman, he says, this quality... This internal quality is precious. It's extremely valuable. It's expensive. Peter here is talking directly to women, but the point here is also true for men. You can reflect the same qualities that are desirous. They're desirous not only to other believers, but they're desirous to God. Paul used similar language when he was talking to Timothy. He was talking about slaves. And just like the wife, they were not to be adorning themselves and focusing all their efforts on their external appearance. Titus 2, verse 10. But showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. There's an interesting word here. It's the word adorn. It's the Greek word cosmeo. Sound familiar? Cosmet? What does that sound like? Cosmetics. It's the Greek word from which we get the word cosmetics. They're called cosmetics because they are adorned. They're put on to make someone appear attractive. To make a person more desirous and appealing. The term refers to causing something to have an attractive appearance through decoration. To adorn means to decorate. Decorate yourself. It's used to speak of women using dresses and makeup. Not here, but in other places. That's how it's used. And here, Paul is saying, decorate yourself. Make yourself more beautiful, more attractive, not through outward appearance, but inwardly, morally. Men, make yourselves attractive. Not necessarily to other people in the world, but make yourself attractive to God. Not by hitting the gym. 1 Timothy 4.8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. There's benefit in going to the gym and staying in shape. But that's not what makes you attractive in God's eyes. That's not what makes you desirable and beautiful in God's eyes. You're not going to be more appealing, more desires to God because you're in better shape than the next guy, physically. You need the qualities that God considers attractive. And according to this verse, what qualities is that? Godliness. God-focused. God-centered, seeking to be pleasing to him. To have the traits and the characteristics in yourself that God finds to be pleasing and desirous. How do you do that? Back to Titus 2. Showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God. 
put on right living. Put on obedience. Put on righteousness. Put on the moral characteristics and qualities that God desires. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, and then you will be beautiful in the sight of God. When we see God correctly, when we see him as he is, he will be beautiful. He will be pleasing in our sight. And that is to say, we will desire him. We will find him to be satisfying. Not satisfying in the way that, you know, if I'm hungry, a sandwich will satisfy me for a couple of hours. But totally satisfying. Which means in the absence of creature comforts, in the, in the midst of trials and tribulations, I can still have joy, I can still be pleased, I can still be satisfied, not because I have all the things in the world, but because I have God, who is my ultimate satisfaction. We can be content. The beauty of God says that God has every desirable attribute and quality. And those attributes and qualities make him ultimately satisfying and pleasing. And everything in this world that is beautiful is beautiful because it has qualities given to it by God. And when we reflect those attributes, God finds them to be pleasing. Not because we reflect them perfectly, but because when God sees those attributes in you, he's not seeing, he's not desiring you, the sinner. He's desiring his own nature that's manifested in you. You might say it this way. God's perfect nature makes God happy. The thing that God desires most is his own perfect nature being manifested in the world. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? Questions or com comments on the beauty of God? No. Okay. Let's talk about blessedness. Um, this term blessed, you guys heard it a lot? Things are going well for someone, you ask someone, hey, how you doing? And they say, I'm blessed. Highly favored. Highly favored. Right? You sit down to eat, what do you do first? You bless the food, right? The term bless is a biblical term. It comes from a Greek word, that one. It's translated as blessed or happy. Remember I just said God is God's perfect nature makes him happy? He's blessed. Now this term can be used to refer to human beings. Um, in that sense, it's used to be fortunate or happy because of circumstances. Acts 26.2, Paul is before King Agrippa. And he said, I consider myself fortunate, blessed, that I'm about to make my defense before you. Here, happiness refers to positive circumstances that result in you feeling positive emotions. My circumstances are good. Now I'm happy. It's also used to refer to a state that can be attributed to divine favor. And this is what we usually think of when we talk about being blessed. God has shown his favor towards me. And he's brought about positive circumstances for me. And so I'm going to refer to that as a state of being blessed. To be blessed, to be happy, is to be content. To have a sense of well-being, to have a sense of satisfaction. The term here is used to refer to someone who has everything that they need to be happy. To be satisfied. And when someone doesn't have what they think they need when they're not content with their present circumstances, because those circumstances aren't in line with their desires, they don't call themselves happy. What do they say? Usually, I'm unhappy. They have a scowl on their face. 
And so they go about seeking circumstances that will give them that positive emotion. They seek out circumstances that align with their desires. They seek circumstances and possessions that will satisfy, that will bring a sense of contentment. What I want you to notice here is their happiness is externally driven. It's derived from what's around them. They can't look to themselves to find happiness because the more they look at themselves, the more miserable they feel. And so they have to go looking outside of themselves to find something that will make them happy. They seek out something that will give them ultimate and lasting satisfaction. David Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on this, on happiness and the world's search for happiness. Here's what he said. The whole world is longing for happiness, and it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. The vast majority are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery. They've set happiness as their top priority. It's the number one thing that they want. And so they seek after those things that will give them that immediate positive feeling. What feels good in the moment? What will make me happy right now? and then they run to it. Now, given that we have a sin nature, what do they usually run to? Sin. Thinking that this sin is going to somehow give them a sense of satisfaction, give them contentment. Only to find out what? Doesn't work. Every time we believe that, it's a lie. And whatever pleasure we get out of the sin, it's fleeting. It only lasts for a little while. And then it's gone. And it just brings out more misery. Lloyd-Jones continues, Anything which, by evading the difficulties, merely makes people happy for the time being, is ultimately going to add to their misery and problems. That is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. It is always offering happiness and it always leads to unhappiness and to final misery and wretchedness. Anytime you set happiness as the goal, that my ultimate goal is to have a positive emotion, pragmatism will lead you right into sin. Because if the end is happiness, the means are justified. And you'll run headlong into sin. And that's really what Martin Lloyd-Jones is focusing on. He's focusing on pursuing sin for the sake of happiness. But our discussion here needs to be a little bit more broad than just talking about sin. We can certainly agree that um, sin doesn't give you lasting happiness. But the same is true when we seek things in the world that aren't necessarily sinful, but we're seeking them just so we could try to have this positive emotion. Some people think that a that lasting happiness is found in a particular career. If I could just get this particular job, then I can be happy. Or if I could just participate in this particular hobby, or if I could just have this particular relationship, or not have a relationship that I'm currently in, whatever the situation is. And they spend their life seeking after the next emotional sensation. Constantly striving after this desire of being content and happy. Why are they doing that? Because they can't find it in themselves. They can't find that happiness in themselves. And so they have to go somewhere else. They have to run to something else. They are right. You can't find happiness in yourself. You can't find contentment by looking at yourself. It is external to you but they just go to all the wrong places to find it. There's only one place that you can find happiness. Back to our word here, for happy. This same word is also applied to God. It's used to speak of his very nature. God is, by nature, happy, in the sense that God is perfectly content. There's nothing he's seeking after. There's nothing he's desiring outside of himself. 
Joel Beakey says, God reveals himself in the Holy Scriptures to be a God of limitless pleasure and joy. Unlimited happiness. Perfect contentment. Scriptures describe God as being blessed. 1 Timothy 1.11 According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, there's our word, with which I have been entrusted. God is by nature happy. He is by nature content. 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, my next slide has them all up at once. So, God is described as being blessed. That is to say that God is described as being happy. God is perfectly content. He's perfectly satisfied with what he has. He's filled with joy constantly. But unlike us, God's happiness is not based on his circumstances. It's not based on something external to himself. Who remembers our discussion on the immutability of God from several weeks ago? Anybody remember? What is immutability? When we talk about God is immutable, what are we saying? Unchanging. If God's happiness were based on circumstances, is God immutable? No. Why is he not immutable if his happiness is based on circumstances? Right? Circumstances are always changing. That's what I'm going through. Circumstances always change. Circumstances in this world are always changing. And if you base your happiness, if you base your contentment on this world and on your circumstances, guess what? Your happiness is always going to be changing. If God's happiness was based on something external to him, he is not immutable. He is always changing. One day you may get a grouchy God. He's just not very happy today. That's a scary thought. <laughs> True blessedness is perfect contentment and satisfaction. True happiness is when you, when you get to the point of true happiness, you stop seeking after things. You stop chasing after desires. You no longer crave something new to satisfy you. Herman Baffing explains it this way. Absolute blessedness is a condition of rest, incompatible with striving toward a goal. If God is seeking fulfillment, if he's seeking happiness by chasing a desire, then he would be seeking for something that would bring him contentment and satisfaction. It would mean that God was dependent upon something other than himself for his joy, for his contentment, for his satisfaction. That he's dependent upon the creature or the circumstances in the world. It would mean that God is not self-sufficient. Remember our second class, we talked about the aseity of God. If God is dependent upon you and me and the world for his happiness, for his joy... God is not self-sufficient. He is not independent of his creation. He is dependent upon his creation. And he is on the same emotional roller coaster that people in the world are when they go chasing after desires to get happiness. God's happiness, his blessedness, is not the result of something outside of himself. He is perfectly happy, perfectly content, and perfectly satisfied in and of himself. Joel Beakey again says, God, since God's joy is himself, his delight is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. God needs nothing outside of himself to be happy, for he is sufficient in himself, being a bottomless fountain of good. What pleases God? What makes God happy? It's not his circumstances it's his own perfect nature. 
all that God needs to be satisfied, all that God needs to be happy, all that he desires for his happiness, he already possesses in himself. The psalmist described it this way, Psalm 36. I think that's verse 5, yeah, 5 and 6. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. Now here's what I want you to note. I want you to know the attributes that he, notice the attributes that he lists. Loving kindness, faithfulness, righteousness. We've talked about all three of them. Now I want you to listen to the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, verse 24. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. What does God delight in? His own attributes. His joy, his happiness, his satisfaction comes from his own attributes. Those same beautiful qualities and characteristics we talked about a few minutes ago, that's what gives him the greatest joy. That's what gives him the greatest satisfaction. Jeremiah says, quotes God and says, for I delight in these things. This is what makes God happy. And he has all of these characteristics. He has them all perfectly, continually, constantly, and without any change. The Puritan, Thomas Manton, said God is blessed in himself as he has the fullness of perfection and contentment. He's not dependent upon you and me to be happy. He was perfectly happy before he created, and he's perfectly happy after he created, and he was perfectly happy after the world fell, and he was perfectly happy today, and he'll be perfectly happy tomorrow and into eternity. Biblical doctrine says God's blessedness speaks of God as being perfectly delighted with himself. Perfectly satisfied, perfectly content. There's nothing outside of God that could add to his joy. This is a hard one to think of, but you and I have never done anything to increase God's happiness. You have never caused God to be more happy. You've never caused God to be less happy. His happiness is constant. It is unchanging. You and I cannot change it. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what the Bible says, and the Bible says that when I do certain things, it causes God joy. God rejoices over certain things in the world. He rejoices over his creation. Zephaniah 3 The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt you, exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will exalt over you with joy. Surely that means creation. We bring him increased levels of joy. Even his own creation, when he made the world and all the things in it, what, what did he say about it when, when he was done? It was very good, yeah. Certainly God rejoiced over his creation, and that gave him more joy than what he had before. Psalm 147, verse 11 says that God finds joy in the acts of his creatures. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Certainly when we behave righteously, when we do well in the Lord, in the world, God is happy about it. It brings him joy. First Chronicles 29, 17, David said, Since I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness. You delight in uprightness. This must bring you some level of joy. Some level of happiness. Okay, so if we take what we've already said about God's happiness, that it's not based on us, and then we take these verses, we have something of a contradiction. It would appear. All right? 
Blessedness says that God is perfectly happy and content in himself. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. Immutability says that God never changes. But if God is happy over his creation and the works of his creation, then did God receive an increased level of blessedness when he created? Is he more or less blessed depending upon your behavior? Is that what these verses are saying? That God is more happy because of the way you behave? To answer this, let's just look at Job 22, verse 3. Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous? Or profit if you make your ways perfect? The answer to these questions is an obvious no. God is immutable. If your conduct increased his happiness, didn't he just change? God is self-sufficient. He has all the happiness he needs. He has perfect happiness. If you increase it, it's not perfect. If it could be increased, it's not perfect. It's not complete. So what are these verses saying when it says that God is happy with us when we behave righteously? He is... Did you have a question? Right. Good, yeah. When God is happy, when it says that God is happy or pleased with the works of his creatures, what he's saying is, in those creatures, he sees a manifestation of his own nature, a nature he gave. And it pleases him when he sees that in his creation. His joy is not increased. His happiness is not increased. It's just manifested outside of himself. Joel Beakey explains it this way. God's pleasure in his creatures does not increase his joy, but extends his inherent joy by the manifestation of his glory outside of himself. God sees his nature in you. He sees what is beautiful in him, and he sees it now in you. And because in you he sees his very nature, that very nature that has given him joy, that he has always been joyful over, and his joy remains perfect even now. You haven't added anything to God. You haven't added anything to his nature. God has always been happy, and he will always be happy at the same level. And he's always happy because he sees his own nature. Now, blessedness is also a communicable attribute. It's an attribute that you should be manifesting. We talked about God being omniscient. He has perfect knowledge. We talked about God being completely wise, perfectly wise, knowing how to apply knowledge to achieve his end. The perfectly wise, the all-knowing God, finds his ultimate joy and satisfaction in his own nature. He finds his happiness in his own nature. If he is perfectly content and happy there, and you are made in his image, where do you think you're going to find your happiness? Do you think you're going to find it in the world? Wayne Gruden provides some good application here. He says, We imitate God's blessedness when we find delight and happiness in all that is pleasing to God. And when we find our greatest blessedness, our greatest happiness in delighting in the source of all good qualities, that would be God himself. You find ultimate joy and satisfaction and happiness not by seeking after the emotional sensation, not even by seeking after happiness. Happiness is the result of delighting and loving God and enjoying Him. It's not the destination. God is the destination. Happiness is what He gives as a result of 
being with him. Um, there is one little thing I want to add here on this. Whoa, I'm about to fall over. When we talk about emotions, right feelings result from right behavior. It's easy to say, well, you, you find happiness, so you'll be happy if you search for God and you, you find your happiness in God. But what does that actually look like? That looks like this. When you behave right, you'll feel right. If you're going to run headlong into sin, chasing after the desires of the world, chasing after the things of the world, you're not going to feel good. God will discipline you for that. If you're his, he'll discipline you for it. Right emotions, positive feelings, happiness comes with right behavior. Living the way God has called you to live. Manifesting those righteous attributes that he wants you to manifest. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions on blessedness, beauty, any comments? Yes, sir. Could you say that uh, the kind of seeking of the blessedness or, or the satisfaction from anything upright that we would do is a, a misunderstanding of the fact that he's outside of time. So we, we sit here and say, oh, I'm acting uprightly and that brings him good. But he didn't experience, he doesn't experience the passage of time. He's experienced everything already that he is. I haven't thought about how it relates to his interaction with time. Um, so I'd have to think about that a little bit more. But I, I, I do agree with you that he is completely separate from his creation. And his nature isn't based on his creation. So if you say he's changing in some way with his creation, then you're saying he doesn't have that perfect nature. So, But I'm going to have to think about the time thing. Yeah, that's the um, that's the doctrine of aseity that he is totally self-sufficient. Um, like you said, we all need water, food, shelter, oxygen. You deprive us of those things for too long, and we no longer exist. God doesn't need anything outside of Himself. He's perfectly self-sufficient. It's very true. Any other comments? Yes, sir. So his anger is his wrath, which is a manifestation of his righteousness. Um, God hates. Wrath really refers to his hatred of sin. And he, he is simultaneously wrathful and hates sin just as much as he is simultaneously happy. Um, I guess the only way that I would be able to relate that in human terms would be... Um, you can love a baby and still hate abortion simultaneously. One insists on the other. God is perfectly happy. He's perfectly content with his own righteous, perfect nature. And because he's perfectly happy with his righteous, perfect nature, he must necessarily hate everything that's opposed to it and that's contrary to it. Does that answer the question? No, it's not outside of his perfect contentment. It, it, how do you put those two together and say he's perfectly joyful and yet demonstrates wrath? Isn't, isn't the point of being perfectly content to be able to be wrathful against sin? Yeah. Yeah. And he's in the position of being able to deal with sin, unlike any other human creature. So that's the point of blessedness. Yeah. Good point. So. 
he couldn't be righteously wrathful if he wasn't content. If he was a grouchy God, his wrath would be really terrifying because then it would just kind of be indiscriminate, kind of like sometimes our wrath is indiscriminate. Was there someone back here? Good. Yeah, it's, it's not out of control fury or rage. It is a righteous, just wrath. Anyone else? I was thinking, too, in uh, our evangelism, a lot of times people bring their evangelism to friends or coworkers as, you know, have a happier life or a better life or whatever. Um, I mean, even the, the problems that we I think there's a lot of people who say, well, I want to be, who go out and do evangelism and they propose happiness and say, God will fix your life if you would just turn to him. And I think that's what you were saying. That's completely wrong. Um, you can use the happiness of God and happiness in God in evangelism. And that is, you point to them and you say, look, nothing in this world is going to satisfy you. All of this is going to go away and you're never going to be satisfied in it. There's only one place you're going to find satisfaction. Your problem is not that you don't have enough in the world. Your problem is that you don't have a relationship with God, and God is at, he's at enmity with you, and you're at enmity with him, and that's your biggest problem. Um, that's how I would answer that. Last one. Yes, sir. Yeah, so we, we can't really experience true wrath and happiness at once because we have some limitations, don't we? But God is not bound by those limitations, so he can experience both of them even if we can't understand it or figure out how it works. Yes. Yes. Yeah, God is simple, right? He, he's not made of parts. Good. Okay, it's 10.02. Let's close in prayer. If there's any more other, other questions, feel free to see me afterwards, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for today. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to come to consider who you are and what you are. And we do ask that you would help us to see you as being beautiful, that you are the sum of all that is to be desired, that everything that is good and pleasing and is to be enjoyed, is found in you. And anything in this world that is pleasing is only pleasing because of you and because of what you have done and who you are. And we see your goodness and your attributes in that thing. 
And so, Father, we just ask that this truth, this reality, that you are blessed, that you are perfectly happy, perfectly content, and our contentment is found in you, should lead us to worship, to lead us to praise, should lead us to seeking after you and desiring you more than anything in this world. We do ask that you would be with us this morning as we worship, that you would bless our worship, that you would um, empower the preaching of your word so that we would learn and that we would grow. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.